Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 148 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we're covering a meaty topic, if you will, not about carnivore diet, but we're going to be talking about a lot of science. <laughs> not a huge deterrent from all the Naturally Nourished podcasts, but today's going pretty deep down the rabbit hole with all things intermittent fasting. We're going to be talking about mechanisms influencing mTOR, IGF-1, and so much more. Yes, Allie, I know you've put this episode off for a little while to preserve some brain space while you were in book writing mode, but this is definitely a topic that we need to hit deeper on as listeners have a lot of questions. Yes, I think the concept of fasting, you know, we really hit on in many episodes and we acknowledge it as a hormetic stressor. We acknowledge it as a successful approach to composition change, to getting the body metabolically adapted into ketosis and really accelerating some of those outcomes, but also some of the pitfalls in it. And uh, today's episode, we're going to go really deep into what type of fasting is correct for you? I think that that's a lot of misinformation of, you know, what am I prioritizing? Does it have to be just water or black coffee? Should it have fat in it? What happens if I add collagen? Is bone broth used during a fast? And all of the information in between. Yes, there are many different ways to do it. And we get questions about this all the time. So we will dig into all of those things and more. Um, but before we get into it, we will be in August when this podcast goes live, which means the Anti-Anxiety Diet Cookbook comes out in like six weeks. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, <laughs> so let's talk book tour and all the things and just what's going on with you personally, as I know a lot of listeners follow along and are pretty much family at this point. <laughs> yes, all the family, all the extended relatives. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm super excited. I'll be kicking off book tour at Book People in Austin, Texas. So if any of you are in the greater Austin area, if you're in San Antonio, Houston, even Dallas, shoot, come on up um, maybe for a weekend. It's going to be on a Sunday evening, September 22nd. We'll be sure to put details on the events page. So if you go AllieMillerRD.com. Under Book Alley, there's a, a drop down for events, or you could just put in backslash events on my browser, and you will see all of the dates. So after Austin, I'm taking oh, the next weekend off from Book Tour to move, hopefully. <laughs> we'll see. I'm talking right now, like in the hopefully last day before we go into contract of uh, buying a new home. And so Brainy and I and Stella will be moving closer to Lake Austin, which will be a nice way to get further entrenched in nature. I think that kayaking is probably the closest step to daily meditation practice that I'll <laughs> be able to do as an, as an active busybody. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that as a change of pace and getting more water activity, just because I think that'll be a really good balance for my pitta dosha, if you will, in Ayurvedic, <laughs> my fire. <laughs> Agree? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There's something, and, something very meditative about just being near a body of water. Totally. So hopefully all things go through. And um, yeah, when you guys hear this, I might be in transition, but uh, in the following week, then after that last week of September, I might be moving hopefully. So that means that the first week of October, I will be in Seattle. We've already booked an event at Bustier University. I will be doing something fun with Crowd Cow, so stay tuned. We might have tickets for sale by the time this airs. Again, everything at the events page. I'll be doing a movement workshop in Portland. And then I'm still deciding right now if we're tacking on San Francisco to that following weekend. Um, but in a couple weeks out from there, I will be finding myself in San Antonio, a couple weekends out from there in Dallas. 
And um, man, it just feels like a lot of action, but I'm super excited to share the Anti-Anxiety Diet Cookbook, meet you all, get hugs, hear about your success stories and answer your burning questions and really just connect the dots. It's so cool seeing everything come into fruition. And really the manifestation of my work is when it's represented through the experience with you guys. So it's such a fun part of the puzzle of, of starting to see things really come to life from the community sharing their progress, their successes, and their application of my food as medicine philosophy. Yes. So if you're in one of the cities that we mentioned, pop over to AllieMillerRD.com slash events for all the details and to RSVPs that we know you're coming. Um, And we look forward to, hopefully I'll be in several of those places that Allie mentioned. So we look forward to meeting you guys. Awesome. Yes. And we've got a couple of new supplements. So I think we've talked about these in a couple of prior podcast, but let's just hit on that before we get into the episode. Sure. So I'll talk uh, BioC plus. I always want to use the word avail, but BioC plus. <laughs> Can't remember maybe, what we named these at this point. <laughs> I know. And, and if you want to share a little bit on Bronco Detox. Sure. So the BioC plus uh, came into the Naturally Nourished line, I think two weeks ago at this point. What is very unique about it is the form of the vitamin C and the fact that it is whole food focused. So the plus part is that it's going to have active bioflavonoids. So these are the unique phytocompounds or antioxidants found in citrus. So it is really a, a whole food supplement. You get 600 milligrams of vitamin C per capsule. But you're also going to be getting a citrus bioflavonoid blend at 100 milligrams, routine, and quercetin. So routine or rutin is going to be that bitter pith, that uh, white fuzzy stuff that we see when we're peeling our lemon or our orange. Um, And a lot of research has been shown on the anti-inflammatory effects there, as well as antioxidant capacity. So great for scavenging free radicals, helping to support detoxification. We've seen uh, studies on routine uh, and breast cancer as a favorable protective agent. And then remember that vitamin C beyond being supportive for collagen formation, skin, hair, nails, anti-aging. And uh, so I kind of think of that as like a beauty supplement in some sense. Um, Remember also that vitamin C plays a big role with adrenal rehab. Our tiny adrenal glands store the most vitamin C of all of the area tissue area of the body. And so vitamin C is used uh, as a regulation of cortisol, the primary stress hormone. So whether you're in stressed and wired or stressed and tired mode, supporting your body with vitamin C is going to optimize the adrenal function. Yes. And I know that's one we've both been doubling down on a little bit in kind of heavier hit mode of all the events and all the things we've been up to. Um, And then uh, the Bracco Detox is the other supplement that we're super pumped to bring to you guys. We talked about it a little bit in the episode on endometriosis and infertility in terms of its um, implications for hormones. But when I dug into this supplement a little further, um, I was really shocked to learn that broccoli actually has 500 plus studies um, of proven benefit um, on the food, on broccoli itself and some of its um, components. And one of the components in broccoli that is kind of most um, known is called sulforaphane. And basically, this constituent is activated in the process of cutting or chewing raw broccoli. But when we cook broccoli, which is the way that normally we would recommend consuming it, especially because of uh, potential for goitrogenic effect on the thyroid and things like that, plus raw broccoli does not taste that great, maybe in a slaw or something (laughs) once in a while, but not on a daily basis, Um, you lose this enzyme activity, this enzyme called myrosinase that converts glucoraphanin to sulforaphane. So you lose the enzyme activity. So you're losing a lot of the benefits, unfortunately. And there are certainly other benefits, other components that are preserved in the cooking and depending on how long you cook it for. But uh, broccoli seed and broccoli sprout tend to have more of this um, active potential, basically. And sulforaphane has a ton of benefits from supporting um, our phase two of detoxification. So encapsulation and 
excretion of toxins from the body, um, specifically um, estrogen, which um, you know has a role if too high in the body is going to cause estrogenic cancers and things of that nature and estrogen dominance. Um, so fluorophane would be great for that and um, also has potential in certain types of arthritis um, as yes. well as uh, macular degeneration and eye conditions, COPD, and um, serious antioxidant potential. So a lot of really cool benefits. And basically this supplement, Brocco Detox, combines um, broccoli seed, broccoli sprout, and broccoli florets. So you're getting kind of that whole food um, synergy and you'd have to eat like pounds and pounds of broccoli seeds and sprouts and broccoli too. With a lot of GI distress. Yep. 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 So broccoli's great and Brocco protect or Brocco detox, excuse me, (laughs) um, is a great way to get all of that synergy in a supplement in two capsules versus pounds of broccoli. (laughs) Yeah. I think that was a a word we were trying to go for, but that didn't get FDA approved. Yes, Bracco <laughs> Detox. Detox <laughs> the name of it. Um, yes, and so it does have a unique compound called brassinase, and that's what combines that broccoli seed sprout and the glucoraphanin with the myronosinase enzyme. Um, myrosinase enzyme, excuse me. And so we're getting the potentiality as well as the activator. And that's what makes it really superior to anything I've found on the market. So we're super excited. Both of these are whole food-based focused supplements. And I'll just address it here because I've been asked multiple times when Brocco Detox hit the market, uh, the difference of it versus DIM. So DIM, so Eindol 3 carbonyls or I3Cs, See, we're going to get really nerdy in this episode anyway. <laughs> it's happening um, even before we get into the, the meat of it. Um, so Eindol 3-carbonyls uh, are also from cruciferous vegetables in that sulforaphane kind of family, but it, it's a more structural or molecular compound and uh, versus a, a bioflavonoid particulate. So Eindol 3-carbonyls, uh, can two of those molecules can be combined into DIM and diindolmethionine, and DIM tends to be more uh, stable of a compound, but also very difficult to be bioavailable. So often I3C supplements are not shown to be as successful on their own because they can be oxidized or they may not be metabolized appropriately. But the DIM, when emulsified, generally will yield good clinical outcomes. Now, the issue with DIM on a long-term scale is that it will bring down estrogen and it is more of a, a potent estrogen metabolizer. And as we mentioned in the episode on infertility and endometriosis, estrogen dominance is important to attack, but we also don't want to just com- completely and obliterate, obliterate, is that the word? Obliterate? Yeah. That's Remove? Remove. Yeah. <laughs> um, we don't want to totally demonize estrogen and, and zero it out, if you will, um, because of course, estrogen has a lot of supportive influence in the body, like supporting bone, supporting mood stability. It has a lot of uh, vascular impact and what have you as well. So like everything in the body, it has a function. So if you're to do something longer term and you want the detox support, cancer fighting support, anti-aging support, the uh, Brocco detox would be a great daily ongoing use. And that's why I actually didn't private label a DIM because I have found that clinically DIM can throw hormone off if taken for too long. So I really like to only use DIM pulsed in at like 90 day, three month intervals and then retesting hormones. So we don't bring estrogen levels to dangerously low. Yes. I think that's a really important distinction to make that the Brocco detox should be, you know, pretty safe for everyday use for anyone and, and benefits beyond, um, women, certainly men as well for prostate health and a lot of those other, um, reasons that I mentioned just as an overall antioxidant support, um, anti-inflammatory, yep. you name it. Yep. And then it ma- will maintain healthy testosterone too. Awesome. Yep. So all amazing, good things. And before we get into today's episode, let's have a quick word from today's opening sponsor from our friends at further food. 
Yes. So further food products are the highest quality food as medicine supplements on the market. They have, and when we're talking about food as medicine supplements, these are powders and elixirs. So we're talking about collagen, gelatin, and uh, turmeric tonic, as well as mindful matcha and some new friends on the block. They're starting some cacao collagen, just insider scoop, that has um, also uh, cordyceps and uh, different mushroom blends in them. Cool. Yeah. A client just pointed that out to me the other day. I haven't even tried it yet, so I'm excited. Um, So we've been ramping up our collagen, both Allie and I, since episode 144 at least. Um, And I know we'll get into today the impact of collagen, you know, whether or not to use that on fasting and kind of cost benefit there. But I've been adding a scoop to my coffee again, which I stopped for a while And I swear my hair has grown like an inch since I started. (laughs) Um, So just the impact on hair, skin, and nails, and especially now that I'm 29 again, I've been really ramping up um, (laughs) my collagen use and mixing it into everything from smoothies and shakes to putting it into some coconut yogurt that I've been eating on a regular basis. And then I love, love, love their gelatin Um, especially in summer, hot summer months here in Houston. Nobody wants to be walking around with a hot mug of bone broth. So we've been doing a lot more gelatin gummies and incorporating that on a regular basis. Yes. So gelatin and collagen are definitely daily use in the Miller household as well. I try to get those both into Stella to support connective tissue, uh, growth development, but also gut integrity to protect her GI tract and reduce food sensitivities. And I have to mention, I had mentioned the chocolate collagen. I pulled it up as you were talking, Becky. It's chocolate collagen peptides plus reishi mushroom, not cordyceps. Okay, cool. Um, But we'll learn more next time we share because it hasn't fully hit the market yet. So very exciting. Um, And then also we had shared when we talked to Ashley, another thing that we love about further food is that they have a really good play on uh, ethics as far as both being a women-owned company, uh, fair market value as far as the product integrity and transparency as far as sourcing, so grass-fed, wild-caught, and uh, they just shifted all of their packaging to be more environmentally friendly, all things that make us happy when we're voting with our dollar and supporting a product line. And uh, Further Food is the brand of collagen and gelatin that I use personally in my household. And then I will incorporate their turmeric tonic sometimes in the evening with full fat coconut milk, a great kind of dreamy anti-inflammatory boost, as well as their mindful matcha, which incorporates adaptogens to really take on the day and provide that L-theanine to balance out the alpha brain waves, which help us with concentration and focus and um, reducing anxiety. So go on over to furtherfood.com, put in the code AllieMillerRD at checkout and you will get 10% off. That also tells them that you learned about them through the Naturally Nourished Podcast. So check out furtherfood.com and use the code AllieMillerRD. Awesome. So let's get into today's topic without further ado. Back in episode 63, which seems like literally forever ago, we covered just fasting 101 and various forms of fasting like 16-8, how time-restricted eating can be used, and we identified some of the primary benefits, but it's been a while. Um, So listeners can go ahead back to that episode if they want a little bit more of the introductory stuff, but let's just give a little refresh um, to set the foundation for today's episode. Sure. So I find intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating to be the same thing. It's just whether you're looking at the glass full, (laughs) half full or half empty, really. Uh, So, you know, intermittent fasting is defined by basically periods of time away from food. Most classic, as Becky mentioned, is a 16-8, which means 16 hours without food, eight hours of a fed state. Um, Time-restricted eating could be using that same window, but just call it an eight-hour time-restricted eating window. (laughs) So, you know. Same kind of thing. Um, Time-restricted eating, some people like because they think of more in an abundance mindset. Like my time-restricted eating plan is to eat from 10 a.m. until 6 p.m., which is still, though, again, an eight-hour eating window. So uh, intermittent fasting can be extended beyond a 16-8, but that's usually a preliminary entry point. And some people even enter fasting with a 12-12, which 
should not be radical. That should be a minimum. I think of all people, all health entry points should go at least 12 hours a day without shoving something into their mouth. <laughs> um, and, you know, a lot of the premise of intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating goes back to ancestral uh, health trends in the sense that we didn't always have accessibility to food. And now in modernized society, we have accessibility to food everywhere, beyond our household, beyond restaurants, even like convenience stores that never had food products, gas stations, and you know, um, Target and other types of stores. Uh, you can go to a hardware store now and there'll be snacks, right? So it's like we're just constantly in a, a society where food is a constant stimulus everywhere you go, in a hospital, in a break room, and you know, anywhere. So you don't have to leave to get food anymore. And um, it's become normalized to be this kind of constant grazer. And that really interferes with our body's metabolism. So we'll dig deep today into some of the markers of, you know, a fed versus a fasted state. And really the big thing we're looking at is trying to harness our blood glucose and insulin levels. Uh, so generally speaking, when we eat foods, especially foods that contain carbohydrates, we're going to have a glucose uh, increase or a glucose peak. The body releases insulin to bring that glucose into the cells. Remember, insulin itself is an anabolic hormone or a building hormone, and it's going to tell the body to store excess fuel as fat. So when we fast, we see a reduction of your base glucose levels as well as your insulin because you're not stimulating the need to store, right? And we tend to get improved insulin sensitivity, which is also going to trend with increased fat oxidation or the ability to burn fat as fuel, meaning your body fat reserves. And this is going to enhance body composition change. We know that there's some very cool shifts that can occur as far as lipids, our cholesterol uh, shifts when we practice fasting or time-restricted eating, because the body just works better when it has a break from food and when it has access to the adipose tissue um, for fat storage, for fat oxidation, we tend to get more favorable metabolic outcomes. We also get a boost in HGH, which is our human growth hormone. And this is going to provide us sparing of our muscle mass, which is going to support metabolic boost or that basal metabolic rate, the amount of calories we burn. So we tend to not waste muscle in a fasted state. And that may be counterintuitive to what you've been told by your personal trainer to eat so frequent, right? And um, we see that fasting also, just like the ketogenic diet, has a lot of implications or, or influence directly on that HPA axis. Everything comes back to the HPA axis. So again, this is that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal feedback of fight or flight, sympathetic response, or rest, digest, reproduce, metabolize, parasympathetic place. And we found that intermittent fasting can control local inflammation in the hypothalamic nuclei. So this is the area of the brain that actually controls our energy intake and expenditure. And so when that area of the brain, the H of the HPA axis becomes less inflamed, this is going to contribute to sustained energy protection against obesity, even beyond, you know, the calorie restricted intake itself. So there's actual mechanisms that regulate hormone that influence our feedback system on whether we are fed or fasted and how much calorie we burn. And then the last unique attribute of fasting that I want to call out that we hit in the, the prior episode was on this concept of autophagy or cellular reset. And the fact that when the body is in a fasted state, we get a more optimized cellular surveillance and cellular cleanup function of the body where we can basically identify those malfunctioning or dysfunctional parts of cells and either do away with them, excrete them, break them down, or repair them. Okay. So a lot of potential benefits of intermittent fasting and or time-restricted eating, however you want to slice it. Um, yeah. So you mentioned the 16-8 as kind of that you know, popular form that we typically are doing ourselves and doing as an introductory place for most of our clients who are starting fasting. Um, let's talk a little bit about another popular form of fasting, which is the 5-2 approach. Sure. So the 16-8 is going to be 
pretty consistent. And some people do like a 5-2 with a 16-8. And basically what a 5-2 is, is five days of quote-unquote normal eating or non-calorie restricted, non-time restricted eating. And then two days a week where generally in the studies, uh, women will restrict to 500 calories and men will restrict to around 600 or 700 calories. And this is basically mimicking a fast because they're below their basal metabolic rate. So they are in a, a deficit for certain and those two days, I've been I've seen studies where, where they've been done consecutively or segregated. So it could be like a Sunday and a Thursday, and then again the other days are quote unquote normal intake. Uh, there was one study that was done where obese participants lost three to eight percent of their body weight in as short of eight week period of time, and they did see a favorable impact on their LDL cholesterol, their blood pressure, insulin resistance, and triglycerides just from doing that cyclical approach. Um, so whether it's a total calorie restriction of two days per uh, week and then normalized eating or whether it's the 16-8 window. And some people will do a 16-8 five days a week, meaning like, for instance, uh, Tuesday through Saturday, they're going to eat from, again, cutting off at 8 p.m. until noon. And then Sunday and Monday, they may have breakfast at 8 a.m. and eat at 12-12 just to kind of shake up their metabolism. Overall. What you'll hopefully learn today is something can work for a period of time, but generally speaking, a lot of the benefits on these metabolic markers have to do with kind of shifting your routine and provoking that metabolic flexibility to get best outcomes, to be a continued hormetic stressor to some level, to keep the body on its toes. That's when we tend to get best clinical outcomes. Okay. So definitely a couple different approaches right there in terms of how you could integrate it on a daily basis. And then there's other folks who do more of like a 24 or an OMA, OMA type strategy, one meal, one meal a day. A day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, you know, three day fasts and things of that nature. And I'm sure we'll get more deep down the rabbit hole on, on those as well. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about autophagy or this cellular cleanup, as I always just find this so interesting. Um, and, you know, a lot of new studies continue to come out really um, seeking to figure out this mechanism and, and um, figure out how we can optimize this and implement it. Right. And I, I, I let's unpack autophagy a little bit, and then let's talk about you know, how much of it we need. Cause I think it's kind of one of those things, <laughs> like we mentioned early in this episode of us bringing collagen back into our, if we want to call that fasted, we'll unpack that, I guess, later in the episode, but what the cost to benefit ratio is like, how much autophagy do you need? <laughs> sure. <laughs> and yep. I think that that's one of those like American philosophies of like, Oh, this thing's good. Let's ramp it up type thing. Um, so autophagy is a, is a natural cellular process. And I mean, it's, it's vital to our ability to stay alive. And it comes from a Greek word, that literally means self-eating. And it's a very cool process where basically the cells are able to recycle themselves. So the cell actually starts to destroy itself in order to reuse certain chemical compounds for continued purpose and then remove those that are dysfunctional again. So it's critical to remove toxic waste from our cells as well as regulate protein conversion and remove pathogens. So if there is actually an exogenous or something from the outside world that's come in to set up camp on a viral level, on a bacterial level, on a yeast level, autophagy is a great way to identify and remove that from the system. And also when we're looking at like tumor activity in the body, when we're looking at dysplasia, cellular uh, misformation, or uh, changes in cell structure that would all be identified in this process as well. And there's basically three identified drivers of autophagy. So the first one is intermittent fasting. And I think that this is really what catapulted. I think intermittent fasting came into the wellness scope or sphere with weight loss, of course, and body composition change. But as we've seen studies of restricted eating schedules to support or activate autophagy, this has really kind of catapulted an industry, I guess, of of fasting and, and what this means. So we've started to see that basically when we're not 
driving fuel supply to our cells, right? And we're not giving a, a, a readily available constant stream of nutrients to the cells. The cells are going to have to turn into autophagy to increase the recycling to activate cells. And so when the body is in a fed state, that in itself is somewhat stressful and distracting to the immunological and anti-inflammatory processes of our system. And this is where we've emphasized for years the importance of sleep. Um, And sleep is actually the second driver of autophagy. And I think, you know, back in the day, there are unique hormonal influences, which we'll get into later in the episode about sleep. Um, So like the impact of melatonin and what have you. But I think that, you know, we used to recommend sleep as such an important process because also you weren't eating, right? (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. most of the time. Um, (laughs) So, you know, when we're sleeping, we're in, generally speaking, one of the least stressed states of the body, but one of the most metabolically active states of the body. So when we're looking at optimizing our sleep patterns, that's definitely going to affect our autophagy cycle. And the more deep, qualitative, restful hours, the more optimized the autophagy is. And then on the other end of the spectrum, which might sound counterintuitive, is exercise. So another productive way to really harness this autophagy is actually by stressing your systems. So this is looking at kind of the hormesis or the hormetic impact. So when you are doing respiratory stress and you're stressing your lungs and when you're building muscle and tearing muscle tissue through exercise, your body is going to fire up autophagy to help the recovery process, right? And so these tiny like micro tears that you're making in your muscle fibers actually rely on autophagy to rebuild the tissue itself. So in sense, exercise metabolizes or drives this cellular detox in an active mode. Sleep is going to enhance the ability of kind of the cleanup and the focused energy of repair and surveillance. And fasting would be more in that world of sleep, also helping to, to repair, but we're getting a little bit more of a hormetic such as exercise with this with the fasted because we are stressing the cells without supplying the constant nutrients. Got it. So really any combination of these three three things can support autophagy. And you know what we tend to come back to is in this industrialized modern society, we're shutting down a lot of that functionality based on being overfed, based on being stagnant at our desks, not moving our bodies and chronically underrested. So getting less than that seven to nine hours of sleep, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like we covered recently two episodes ago in episode 146, a, a lot of whole body wellness really comes back to the body feeling safe. (laughs) And, you know, all of these three things, I don't think, I'm not sure if you could oversleep. I guess you could oversleep in the sense that you wouldn't have enough mobility and movement and, you know, you'd be stagnant during your sleeping process. But, you know, when we talked about leptin as a hormone and its regulatory function on the body, we know that exercise and fasting can both be overdone or overstressed. And an individual that's underrested um, can definitely make both of these louder or more exacerbated, as well as an individual that is undernourished or that has a low body fat percent you know, then these strategies of further calorie restriction, further calorie output may drive more pronounced imbalance in the body. And so it's making sense of, you know, what is the mechanism of action? What are my personal goals and outcomes? So when we unpacked the role of leptin and insulin two episodes ago, you know, it was identifying that generally speaking, these two hormones regulate calorie intake and satiety, right? So in a general stance, when we're looking at, you know, weight loss in general, um, our, our low energy intake or calorie restriction are generally insulin and leptin hormone go down, right? Whereas if we're in a fed state and we have high energy intake, insulin's going to go up and leptin might go up, but then have some insulin, some leptin, excuse me, resistance where we're continuing that overeating. We're not getting that leptin sensitivity. We identified that the ketogenic diet has a unique metabolic state. And what that, that proposes is that it's one of the only known, uh, particular diet strategies that has opposing changes in leptin and insulin. 
So when you're actually hypocaloric or low calorie in a ketogenic diet, because the diet is fat focused, you're actually still getting enhanced leptin signaling and leptin production while the fasting insulin levels go down because we're not provoking that fed signal of insulin, which is that anabolic. So we're getting this satiety as we're also getting access to burning fat as fuel and not getting body fat building from the insulin. Got it. So I will link back to episode 146 if you want to dig more into leptin. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, what's considered a true fast or a naked fast, as you like to call it, um, and tools for success in doing that. Because I know there's a lot of different schools of thought of what fast is you know, best, what's most appropriate for you. Um, so what's allowed in a, a naked fast and what would be the benefits there? Yeah. So a true fast or a naked fast, generally speaking, is going to be still or sparkling water. Uh, you may consider an electrolyte water uh, or, you know, adding liquid electrolytes uh, to your water or just taking those as a supplemental form. Uh, because again, water in itself, especially like filtered water and highly filtered water can actually make us uh, like hypotonic or uh, can actually pull out um, electrolytes or dilute them further if you're already running borderline low electrolyte. Um, so be mindful of that. Salt for that reason, like red mineral salt, which has 60 different trace minerals, also a great tool for successful fasting. Coffee and tea both have unique benefits. And because they're both considered uh, non-caloric or basically less than five calories would be considered in a true fast. And what we'll talk a moment, both of them have been shown in research studies to be favorable to boost a lot of fasting processes because of the mechanisms of caffeine, which both of them have in general, as well as some of their unique polyphenols and antioxidants. And then for that reason, also, you can add some like infusions to your water, like cinnamon stick, lemon or lime slices, or cucumber slices. All of those are fair game for a true fast. Now you want to avoid any non-caloric sweeteners because these can provoke cravings. You guys know I don't like them anyway as far as like a palate shift, uh, but they can also provoke insulin response, which can interfere with the metabolic influence. And this is why I also would avoid flavored waters for this reason, even like La Croix or Waterloo or some of the cleaner brands that are out there because of the quote unquote natural flavors. I'm just not 110% sold that that has no metabolic influence. So maybe during the middle of the day, that'd be fine, but I'd keep it really simple and clean during a fasted state. Yep. Especially if they taste like a Jolly Rancher, which some of the flavors really do. I'm like, what is in this stuff? Yes, totally. <laughs> um, and even to the extent of like the electrolytes, you'd want an unsweetened, unflavored yes. electrolyte, like the highlight drops, which we both like to use, um, or mm -hmm. an electrolyte capsule or something like that versus like a powder with non-caloric sweetener in it. Totally. Um, okay. So beyond these things that are allowed, some of them, like you said, can actually enhance outcomes of a fast. So let's talk about tea, which is a ritual I know we're both working on doing more regularly. I've been doing the little peak tea in my water um, more often. Um, but instead of you know the negative impact of flavored water, tea can actually help to boost your body's metabolism. Yes. And I mean, I think when we look at like tea and coffee, both of them have been known to be health elixirs for ancient cultures. And there is this powerhouse approach to, you know, immune enhancing anti-inflammatory and antioxidant mechanisms. Uh, but particular for intermittent fasting, tea has been shown actually in research to support, uh, hunger reduction. So it actually has a mechanism, especially catechins that are found in green tea have been proven in, in multiple studies to lower your ghrelin levels. And ghrelin, remember, is that hunger hormone that works opposing to leptin. So green tea can bring down, and catechins generally in tea can bring down your ghrelin, which is really important to regulate satiety and not have hunger. Um, we've also seen actual mechanisms in weight loss support. Uh, we've seen that catechins can actually be very effective in burning, especially the visceral abdominal fat. So the fat that is highest uh, danger or closest to our uh, liver, cardiovascular system, pancreas. Uh, and that is uh, definitely a high priority there as well. So enhanced body composition change and actually metabolism, particularly of visceral fat and fat burn mode seen with the EGCG compound in green tea. 
Um, we've also seen improved autophagy. So there's actually food as medicine that can support this anti-aging cellular reset property. Um, so we've seen that tea has been shown to enhance the rate of autophagy in the body and um, that there is a scientific reason of it being linked as an anti-aging property, and that's both reduced free radical overloads and enhanced autophagy. And then we see that there's polyphenols in tea that can support detoxification. So we can also see support of uh, liver enzyme activity with tea consumption. And then finally, I would hit as the fifth thing, uh, stress reduction. So we know that like cortisol, we've talked about in prior prior episodes, how cortisol being that primary stress hormone if the body is stressed during a fasted mode, it's not going to have as beneficial influence on autophagy or on metabolism because cortisol is a glucocorticoid steroid hormone. So cortisol itself tells the body to dump sugar from the liver. Um, so if the tea helps with stress reduction, having that L-theanine, this can help to mitigate or reduce our cortisol influence in the body, which means that we should also have more favorable metabolism. Okay. Awesome. And you mentioned green tea specifically in a couple of those studies. Um, so would that be the best option as a tea choice and does matcha fit in there or are all teas, um, equally beneficial? They all have different, uh, elements that are beneficial for sure. So, you know, matcha is going to be more concentrated green tea where it's grown in shade and has, you know, 10 plus times the amount of L-theanine, also higher concentration of polyphenol. So all of those benefits could be, uh, increased with the use of matcha, which would be a big recommendation for certain. The only thing I would say is during a fasted state, matcha might be a little more difficult because it's definitely grassier, be that it's powdered. They actually grind, you know, the tea leaves versus just steep them. And so that in itself, I haven't tried the matcha from Peaks. I'm intrigued on that. Um, but that in itself might be a little bit more difficult to incorporate fasted per se. Um, but you definitely could. Um, black tea leaves are actually the same leaf of a green tea leaf. They're just fermented. Uh, so black tea does have some unique constituents. Uh, one of them is called methyl xanthine, which actually boosts serotonin levels. So that could have more mood stabilizing effects, promoting balanced mood and relaxation. And black tea often has bergamot in it. And bergamot has also been shown independently bergamot oil to suppress appetite. So that could help you get through your fasted mode. And then if you wanted a caffeine free option, again, caffeine has independently been shown to boost autophagy also metabolism of fat as fuel. But if you don't want to rev up <laughs> with caffeine, uh, rooibos can be an awesome antioxidant uh, boost that also has unique detox support. Uh, rooibos is also known as African bush tea. So this is that bright, beautiful red tea um, that's been shown in studies to support also fat metabolism and um, supporting detox to clear skin. Um, in fact, it was said that Cleopatra used to drink rooibos tea every day. And there's been studies in the Journal of Phytomedicine that came out on the effects of rooibos on adipocyte differentiation and aiding both uh, with the look of like cellulite and fatty deposits, as well as actual body fat composition change. Super cool. So kind of different benefits across the spectrum of teas. And rooibos is one that I often recommend if you're starting your fast, let's say you cut off dinner at you know, 6, 7 p.m. and you are used to going for something at that 8 p.m. snack time, rooibos can be a great way um, in the evening to kind of wind down and it has that little bit of a sweet flavor. So um, can satisfy a sugar craving for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely complex, but, it, but I, I would say, you know, it's still tannic though, you know, as far as like you could do, and there are some rooibos teas that are like with dried strawberry or something like that. I'd, I'd be mindful of that and just keep it kind of tight. Um, but definitely you're going to get those tannins, which is really cool. And so a great replacement for wine as well. Uh -huh. Yes. <laughs> okay. So another reason just to make a tea ritual and, and I want to share with listeners, um, we've been playing with, like I said, peak tea as an easy organic product that has a really convenient delivery. It's in these little sachets that you can take with you on the go. So I had been keeping those in a drawer at the office and I have them at home for just like when I'm running around and want something other than water. Yeah, totally. And so an awesome food is medicine supplement on the go. Uh, just a little shout out. I, I did connect. So Peak is not our sponsor here today, but I do have a discount code. Uh, you can go into the show notes to click on that. 
And um, the big benefits is that it's always organic and additive free. They use a patent cold crystallization effect where they brew the tea leaves at a low temperature for upwards of eight hours. And then they extract all of the natural antioxidants and phytonutrients um, that get crystallized. So you can add them into cold or hot uh, water, which is really great for travel on the go. You can literally just dump it into a water bottle. Um, they do third-party testing that has verified that they have 12 plus times the polyphenols of other teas, which is awesome. So you're getting maximum active ingredients. They do a triple toxin screening, screening, which is also super, super awesome. And this is why I love recommending them to like pregnant mamas and really any way of your lifespan. We've seen that pesticides, heavy metals, and toxic mold are definitely high concerns and even can come into the world of tea bags, right? We've talked about how you can get an organic tea, but then it might have a chlorine bleach tea bag and that's going to neutralize all of the antioxidant effects. So another benefit of getting these in these like little convenient pouches, um, we're not going to have, uh, we're going to have high viability of the active constituents, as well as be sure from third party testing that there's no accumulation of toxins and then you're not getting the toxicity within the tea bag itself. Yes. So we're not talking any tea here. Lipton <laughs> won't, <laughs> won't have no. the same benefits and would have more of that toxicity concern, but, um, you know, they're not a paid sponsor for today, like you said, but we will share in the show notes a link for discount code. Um, let's get into our other sponsor for today's episode, CrowdCal. Yes. So I always love sharing CrowdCal with you guys, and I hope that you've taken a moment, uh, Naturally Nourished podcast listeners, to go on over to crowdcow.com backslash naturally nourished and have checked them out. If you haven't heard, CrowdCow delivers the very best craft meat from farm to table. What I love about them is you can actually select the ranch from where you're buying your meat and it gets delivered directly to your door, but you get to virtually meet the small independent farmer who produced. And this is the best way that you can really vote with your dollar. You can select the exact cuts that you want. You can select the exact diet of the cow, whether you want grass fed, grass finished like I do, or whether you want grass fed with a little bit of grain finish for more marbleization. And that's a compromise you're willing to make. Um, you can prioritize all of that while you select the farm and their practices, and then you can select the cuts that work best for your household. Yes. We had a blast meeting the CrowdCow team, Faith and Catherine and everyone who was out for our event at KetoCon. And I think the highlight of that event, at least for me, was the Wagyu lollipops or uh, s'mores, however you want to say it. Um, Literally melt in your mouth. Amazing. Olive fed Wagyu that I know we've talked about on here before, but literally a highlight for so many of us at KetoCon. Yes. And really cool. Also, they've just launched a keto influencer part at CrowdCow. So you can go in and check out a curated bundle that I've put together for naturally nourished listeners, but you know, just the general public. And this is what Brady and Stella and I go through in a week. Um, so there's gonna be a lot of varieties in there. Go on over and check it out. All of my selections are grass fed, uh, both, uh, pasture raised, but grass finished as well. Uh, two pounds of ground, dry aged grass fed, grass finished ground beef. We got chicken thighs, bone and skin on. We got a whole chicken so that pasture raised, of course, so that you can make your weekly bone broth and so much more. Go on over to crowdcow.com backslash naturally nourished. And when you start from that link, you will get $25 off your first order in addition to free shipping. And then you can shop by checking out my bundle or shop by farm or source. And this is going to put an end to mystery meat and make sure that you are feeding your family food as medicine from a snout to tail philosophy with best quality sourcing at a competitive price point. Awesome. So back to today's content, um, tea and coffee and water are pretty much your options for a pure (laughs) naked fast. So if you're fasting and salivating over the crowd count that we just talked about, save that for when you break your fast. You can't do a meat fast that I know of. (laughs) But what about a bone broth fast and fat fast. Where did those fit? Do they interfere with fasting? Who are they appropriate for? But um, maybe before we get into that, um, let's um, talk a little bit about this new world of research on sirtuins. Am I saying this right? Um, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) And hit our our listeners with some of the actual markers of health uh, influenced by fasting. 
Yes. Sirtuins? I think so. Yep. Sirtuins. Um, so caloric restriction and intermittent fasting, again, are going to cause this oxidative stress in the body. It's hormetic, right? And so that triggers protective proteins called sirtuins. And they're associated with longevity and reduced inflammation. Um, And they're going to be hand in hand with the life extension benefits of the autophagy process. So, you know, again, now that that biochemical science and A&P are starting to catch on to some of these metabolic markers, we're looking at how do we test these things? Um, so there are autophagic uh, proteins that can be tested, like LC3. Same thing you can test for mTOR, uh, both of them in a blood 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 spot test. Um, but you know, I'm not really sure the reference of that and what that's going to tell us per se. Um, I would really start with the first four biomarkers that are much more. Uh, known and much easier to do as far as like a standard lab. So I would start with C-reactive protein. What is your level of inflammation, right? IGF-1, insulin growth factor 1, fasting insulin, and leptin. Those are four values that I would start with to prioritize if and how you should fast. Okay, cool. And um, you could run the leptin, fasting insulin, and CRP in something like our cardiometabolic panel. Is the IGF-1 a pretty typical test. Like, will a doctor run that if you request? So you can request it, um, you know, if they'll run it, it depends on ego (laughs) always. Right. Uh, but you know, um, I mean, IGF one is also kind of uh, like mTOR, one of those controversial ish hormones. We really started studying IGF one with, uh, tumor growth as a tumor growth factor, if you will, in cancer care. But um, IGF-1, it stands for insulin growth factor. It's known for also anabolic effects. So anabolic means building. So this is why we've watched it for cancer treatment. But IGF-1 was actually in the deer antler spray that was um, you know, used by like uh, athletes, right? And so this was in a way to like boost gains, if you will, right? So like testosterone, muscle gains. Um, and we generally have seen muscle and cognitive performance enhanced with IGF-1 levels being elevated, but the cost of that is generally associated with lower longevity. Um, We've seen lower IGF-1 with enhanced lifespan, um, but we've seen the cost of that to be on the muscles and the brain. Um, So I really would probably, even with that being said, prioritize CRP leptin and fasting insulin levels as the first ones. And then, you know, if you're someone that's like a high focused athlete or looking at muscle building, or you have a high, strong family history of cancer, this is where then you might want to start to look at some values of of IGF-1. Got it. So it sounds like mTOR, IGF-1, there's kind of this trade-off piece of the puzzle that probably most of our listeners are looking more for the longevity piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for instance, when we're looking at um, IGF-1, we know that this is a marker that can have an impact with tumorigenic activity as can mTOR. So mTOR stands for mammalian target of rapamycin. And um, you can just call it mTOR from now on. (laughs) (laughs) So basically it's a target of protein synthesis. So both IGF-1 and mTOR drive anabolic protein formation or like could could be called like rapid cell producers, if you will. Um, and both of them have that same correlation where they have a, a, you know, factor with cancer, aging, immune function, and obesity. mTOR, elevated levels are going to stimulate growth, um, maybe the growth of a healthy individual or of malformed cells. And then low levels are going to hold or, uh, you know, pause the growth and focus on more repair, maintenance, and those autophagy processes. Uh, mTOR and IGF-1 are both fueled by glucose and amino acids. Um, so we used to think a really high protein diet will influence these, but the impact of glucose or elevated blood sugar levels is astronomically higher for both mTOR and IGF-1 values over the amino acids and the proteins. And we'll kind of unpack that a little bit further. Okay. So what are kind of the priorities of people who'd want mechanisms of autophagy and, you know, kind of body composition in which we would prioritize um, fasting? Yeah. So, you know, I would look first for obesity, cancer, inflammatory conditions like chronic inflammatory conditions, insulin resistance, which could also be in the world of diabetes, 
and known toxicity or toxic exposure. So those, and toxicity could be in the world of also a pathogen, right? So it could be a, uh, like dealing with SIBO or candida. Those populations are going to have a high priority of autophagy because we need to remove, clean, and repair. Now, the people that we would probably put on the back burner focus of autophagy would be people that have a lower percent body fat. Um, so for women, we're talking about like really under, instead of 18, I'd probably say under 21 or under 20% body fat, um, loss of period or hormone dips. And then even men of uh, low percent body fat that are having exercise losses of performance with fasting, men or women, I would say in that sense. Okay. So those would be individuals who'd be at risk for imbalance. So they might be the ones who are doing that fat fast that I mentioned or adjusting their, their fasting in some way. Yeah. Either being less restrictive on the timestamp or, uh, liberalizing from a naked pure fast to a modified fast. Exactly. Okay, cool. Um, and then potential addition of collagen on top of that, depending again on our priorities. And if we're experiencing hair loss or something like that in that imbalanced state. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is if we're coming at this and we're not dealing with chronic inflammation, cancer, um, or known toxicity or known diabetic metabolic distress, right? Then a pure naked fast may not be necessary. And so I would always go in for a woman, especially that's low body fat. I would always start with a fat fast, especially if they need hormone recovery. So a woman that's dealing with hypothyroidism, adrenal fatigue, um, or low progesterone, they all would do better with a fat fast. They may even want to layer in collagen to support the connective tissue and all of the mechanisms of meeting their protein needs because I often see women at inadequate protein intake and they may have a fear, you know, based on old outdated keto info on gluconeogenesis, you know, the, the impact that there's transamination and protein intake could convert into glucose. But at the end of the day, if you're still doing even a collagen fat fast, it's likely still hypocaloric, lower calorie intake than um, you know eating maybe a big breakfast of an omelet, a side salad, and what have you. And you still may get some of the benefits because we see calorie-restricted eating yielding beneficial outcomes on a lot of these mechanisms, anti-inflammatory as well as autophagy, um, which would help as well. And if you're getting still a 12-12, you're still going to be optimizing that without driving distress. And again, what are you really looking at achieving in your body? You don't need to just turn one light switch and blind the rest of the outcomes or feedback of your body. If you're losing hair, if you're feeling anxious, you need to modify your fast to add fat and add some protein, or maybe just not fast at all. Got it. So even further, um, getting away from kind of the doctrine of fasting that it, there's one way to <laughs> one way to do it, and it's water only or black coffee only. Um, what about bone broth, as we mentioned, and the implications for that on mTOR, which you said is is fueled more by glucose plus amino acids? Um, how does bone broth, which is rich in amino acids, support that fasted state, and um, will that interfere with mTOR or what's going on with a bone broth fast? Yeah, I think that's a great thing to hit as we kind of bring this full circle. So again, I think protein takes a, a hit in the world of insulin, IGF-1, and mTOR because protein is a you know marker of anabolic proteins themselves. And those are all expressions of an anabolism, right? Building rapid growth repair. Um, but when you look at bone broth and its composition, we're talking about nutrient density of glycine and glutamine. And these are particular amino acids that can actually enhance body fat burn and gut repair. So there's mechanisms of glycine and glutamine that will help with reducing inflammation in the body by helping with gut restoration and then helping to metabolize fat as fuel. So that influence of those nutrients as powerhouses in bone broth may for many people outride the moderate influence that that might interfere with some of these anabolic marking hormones, if you will. And, you know, the reality with all this is that we often jump into a concept very myopically, right? So we, we think about this, this concept that, um, you know, amino acids are going to interfere with these markers, so have none of them. But it's really important what amino acids and, and what levels. We've seen studies that demonstrate interference with fasting mechanisms of, you know, glutamine levels at 
30 grams, whereas, you know, 15 grams of gelatinous bone broth is only going to provide less than two grams of glutamine. And, you know, if we're talking about actually eating protein, like a chicken breast has three to five grams of glutamine, even doing my GI lining powder is looking at three to five grams of glutamine, you know, and so we're not looking at a study of 30 grams glutamine intake interfering with the mechanisms of fasting. We're looking at maybe consuming one to two grams during this fasted state, and likely you're still going to get some of the benefits of autophagy. It's not a light switch. Again, it's not just this on or off. Um, So we have to be mindful that it's important when looking at research on the influence of protein, not to get too myopic or tunnel vision and recognize that it's the dose that makes the poison. And often the dose that we see in negative research studies is a supplemental form in an isolate, not a whole food, and one that would not even be taken as a therapeutic supplement level. Got it. So you would never be taking 30 grams of glutamine, like you said. You might be taking three to five, and that's even a heavy hit. Um, So bone broth fasting, we have is it two blogs? Do we split it into two? We have a couple of blogs on this of kind of the the how to do it and then the nerdy science um, that Allie has just kind of dipped into a little bit today. But I will link both of those in the show notes for the sake of time if that's something that is of interest. Um, I find personally that this is the best way for me to do a prolonged fast. I wouldn't do a prolonged water or black coffee only fast. That would be terrible for my body composition and my adrenals and all the things I've got going on. Um, But I find bone broth fasting to be a very therapeutic reset, especially after like a vacation or a time of increased gut distress or something like that, just to reset like quarterly or so. And you're adding fat when you're doing a bone broth fast as well, right? So that's also... Yeah, like 500 calories or so of fat. So blended in, you know, I'm making like fatty bone broth lattes essentially. Yeah. And so in the bone broth blog, we'll talk about, you know, again, you could take these same considerations. If you're dealing with over 30 pounds of being overweight, you might just do the bone broth with salt. If you don't have that much body fat to lose, you would want to add fat so that you don't go low hormone. Um, and that's when then we can see things like hypothalamic amenorrhea or, um, you know, concerns where we would be putting ourselves at more harm than benefit, but doing a bone broth fast can be a great way. Like you said, to kickstart clean eating, um, to think about it really in support of like detox, especially if you take the reset, restore, renew detox packs during a bone broth fast. Um, and this can be a really great way to drive inflammatory bowel disease back into a remissive state. Um, so if we're talking about Crohn's ulcerative colitis, definitely with use of GI lining support, targeted strength, probiotic and digestate enzymes with the fat added, very therapeutic to cool and soothe that bowel motility. Um, And so this is a great way to to really be able to support that. Yes. And I think kind of bringing things all the way around, what's really important is to assess, you know, your starting point of what fast is going to be appropriate for you, whether fasting is going to be appropriate for you. So looking at your level of metabolic handicap, need for restriction, what your goals are. If you are someone with 30 pounds of extra body fat to lose, you know, fasting is going to help to tap into that and you've got resources to tap. But if you're someone who is trying to fast at 21%, you don't have resources to really dig into. So assessing your level of starting point and then, you know, looking at, um, different uh, mechanisms of fasting and different ways of fasting that might be more appropriate for you versus the one size fits all approach. Exactly. And listening to the feedback of your body throughout your journey. Like I've done fat fasting for a couple of years now as my kind of MO, just because I like to start clinic. I notice cognitive enhancement and just rock and roll. And I like to eat my first meal around noon. But I noticed with my book deadline that I was like having pretty significant estrogen drops and going pretty androgenic. So I I think I talked in a couple episodes, I like went down an entire cup size in my bra. Um, I noticed that also I was feeling a little bit more anxious and wiry. So I pulled caffeine down to half the amount I was having and made myself start eating at 10. And I'm telling you in six weeks, um, I'm back to my normal bra size. So there's like a very direct relationship of, again, the body being in too dynamic of a hormetic stress response and maybe being undernourished at a time when you're higher mental, emotional stressed and don't have that qualitative sleep. That might be a time to be more gentle versus add another layer of stress on the body. 
That totally makes sense. We were sharing a swimsuit size for a second there. And <laughs> <laughs> I guess you can't borrow You're my like, swimsuit. You really top weren't lying. <laughs> It's true. Yeah. Um, and I want to hit just real quick before we let everyone go. Um, I, I was nerding out, you know, preparing for today's episode and Dr. Rhonda Patrick has so much cool beepu bapu science on all of these topics. Um, but she recently actually, um, in the week that I was setting up notes for this episode, put out a study on how our metabolism shifts throughout the day and was examining postprandial glucose in the AM in breakfast versus dinner of the identical meal in the same individual. And there are a lot of new studies that show that melatonin, um, which, you know, starts to increase about two to three hours before bed, binds to receptors on our pancreas to signal to stop producing insulin to help with sleep. Um, and so this can definitely impact our blood sugar levels. Melatonin can essentially impact insulin and glucose levels because if insulin goes down and we're eating a higher carb meal, that means that we'll likely get a higher blood sugar response. Um, and so often the most clinically recommended way to fast would be that if you're doing a 16, eight, you know, you'd cut off at like 4 PM, let's say, um, and I haven't done the math prior. So let's say 4 AM adding on four hours. So you'd go 8 AM. Is that right? 8 AM to 4 PM would be your eating window. Um, or 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. you know, would be the ideal quote-unquote eating um, window. Now, again, for me, when I look at the use of fasting as a tool, that's never going to work for me because dinner is my favorite meal. And <laughs> I'm not chronically ill. I'm doing this as a layer of wellness. And I'm not, gonna, I'm not that kind of a patient or client that's going to white knuckle something because it's the best for me. Because I think the stress and the annoyance <laughs> and the mental emotional distress of not being able to have a glass of wine with my husband in the end of the day and sit around the dinner table with my family would be more harmful to my healing journey than beneficial. So that's just a little antidote and just being totally raw, right? So like when we hear these things that are good for us, put it actually into your life story and what that means for you and your routine. And maybe for some of you, that sounds awesome. And that works really beautifully. And if you have a higher priority, like you're going through cancer treatment or, you know, you have high risk factors or X, Y, Z, that may be the most appropriate way to do intermittent fasting. But for me personally, that that's not something that I'm willing to give up. Yep. I agree. I like the wind down of dinner and <laughs> it's often the most exciting meal of the day, like actually take time yeah. to make it and cook it. So that's just, and I'm actually parasympathetic, yes. like I'm in a restful <laughs> state. So, you know, I don't know my body and it's cortisol in the morning in clinic versus mm -hmm. <laughs> where I'm at in the evening. Who knows if I would have the same scoring? Totally. Anyway. Totally. Yeah. And you know, when I'm carbing up in the evening, that trends of why I recommend the carbs in the evening, because you want more of that glucose spike, because you want more of that leptin response. So it kind of goes full circle there. Awesome. So hopefully today's episode was enlightening in a couple different ways. Big picture, uh, you can get the benefits of autophagy from sleeping, exercising, or fasting, and you can layer all three of those together. Listen to your body and your feedback. If you're seeing hair loss, if you're seeing anxiety, if you're seeing brain fog, difficulty concentrating and thinking, you need to add probably more calories and less time-restricted eating to your plan. Um, and think about variables within it, like a bone broth fast or a fat fast. And I think also today we learned about how to drink more tea. So uh, you can go over to the show notes to check out that link um, to save with Peak. Uh, check out all of our partners from today, Further Food and Crowd Cow, and um, we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.